Today, though, we will return to our study in uh, the book of Job. And we come to this very interesting portion of Job, several chapters that are dedicated to the speech of one individual, and that individual's name is Elihu. In fact, if you want to think about where we are in the book of Job, we began in the first couple of chapters with just the, the tragedy that is uh, Job's difficulties of life. It is just a description of how suffering has entered into the life of this man in such a strong way, in a way that's so surprising, uh, so immediate, and uh, so intense that it's almost difficult to believe that historically such a thing actually happened. But we have the words of God telling us that this is exactly what happened, and we have the validation from other portions of Scripture telling us that this is not an epic tale. Job was real, and he went through such suffering as almost no one else on earth has ever experienced. Then his friends come along, and in the beginning there is some comfort in the presence, in the ministry of presence, and soon enough there is a dialogue that ensues, and it begins cordially enough. Job, may I probe into your life and speak to you and hope that the Lord is kind of giving you wisdom in all the things that are happening. But as the three cycles of each friend, Job's response, right? Eliphaz, Bildad, then Zophar, right? Uh, as each speaks and Job responds, then Job speaks. And then the, the second speaks, Job responds, and he speaks. And then the third, as three cycles of those go through, it, it has kind of degraded into, I think, an overly simplistic theology. His friends are convinced bad things happen because people are bad. Whereas good things happen because people are good. So Job, you could say what you want, but you can't fool everyone forever. You're hiding something. Repent, confess, and maybe God will, you know, he will turn his wrath from you. The whole time Job is arguing, no, I have not done anything that is deserving of this kind of wrath poured into my life. This kind of suffering. And I don't understand why God would do this to me. We'll look at his argument a little more because uh, Elihu is going to frame that for us a bit. But having said that, we concluded with Job's final words about everything that he's, uh, he's going through, the, the, the difficulty of his life and moment, his expectation of death, and the fact that he looks to God and God will not respond to him. That was his final words. And we said that if we had ended there, Right in the, at the end of chapter 31, it would be a sad tale, but then Job would have died. The words of Job are now ended. So when we pick up in chapter 32, and for several chapters, there will be four speeches by this young guy that comes on the scene. His name is El He just speaks. Four speeches, no one responds, he just speaks. And then what follows Elihu's four speeches is God himself. Then finally, God will come and he will respond. And you will speak to Job primarily. Then towards the end of that, he will speak to Job's friends in a word of rebuke. He never addresses Elihu, though. 
And so this brings us to this, this very interesting quandary that I will present to you before um, we go to prayer and look to the particular passage in front of us. Elihu, there's two ways that I think uh, scholars throughout the centuries have looked at this young man and this particular portion of Job. One, if I may, you know, in a, in a kind of, I, I know it's kind of scholastic to use this terminology, but he's a windbag ninny. I, I, there's an entire, I, I would say like 50-something percent of, of ancient and current uh, scholars who think that this is a young gun who's probably saying too much and is not really accomplishing much. In fact, they would frame his arguments as being very similar to his friends. So that even though he comes out and he addresses the friends and says, you have not been helpful, these scholars think that neither has Elihu. He hasn't been that helpful either. And then there's another category of, uh, of scholars and, uh, and students of the scriptures that look at Elihu and they think this is a prophet of God. He speaks true and wise words. And if this is the case, then as a prophet of God, he speaks as almost a preamble to the very things that God is about to expose. Now listen, I'll, I'll, for the sake of full disclosure, I, I find myself in the second half. Um, if you do a superficial kind of quick reading through the book of Job, I, I know it's super long, so there's not a... There's not a superficial quick reading, a superficial long reading through the book of Job. And as you do that, when you come to Eliphaz, if you read it kind of quickly, right, and you kind of have that spirit where you're thinking that Eliphaz is no different, right, than Job's other friends, then I think you come to Eliphaz, I'm sorry, I keep saying Eliphaz, Elihu, too many Ellas, right, and, and Elihu, right, it, it, when you come to Elihu, you might read him to sound kind of like a windbag, like, I'm about to say something, and I want you to listen. I'm real sincere about this. You guys are old, but you guys are wise, but you're not that wise, right? Like, it kind of sounds like he's just kind of, like, blustering. But then when you look carefully at exactly what he's trying to say, and you organize his thoughts a little bit, I think you come away with the sense that this is a young man, but he has something very significant to say. And his angle on things is very different. Is he going to rebuke Job? He is. But unlike Job's three friends, he doesn't come from a place of saying, Job, you've sinned, that's why you're suffering. He says the exact opposite. Job, you're suffering. But your suffering has caused you to say some things you probably should not say. I'm not blaming you, right, for the suffering. I'm blaming you for your reaction in suffering. And so in that sense, he has a prophetic voice that I think is helpful, not just to Job, but for all human beings, all men and women of faith that will walk in this life and face adversity, suffering, and pain. He has a lot to say about these things. And I, and I think, at least in my mind, it makes sense to me that as you look carefully, that he is a man that speaks on behalf of God. That seems to be what he is saying. And God himself doesn't refute this case. You realize Elihu speaks, and then when, when God speaks, he primarily just addresses Job in a few chapters. And then he addresses, right, Eliphaz and your two friends. Not Eliphaz and your three friends. And he rebukes them for not speaking rightly about him. But as Job has. 
He doesn't even speak to Elihu. Why? Well, because I think if Elihu is a prophetic voice, he is that prophetic voice that kind of speaks from a human vantage point, that which God will speak from the divine or heavenly vantage point. And as a result, it's almost like John the Baptist, uh, the, the preemptive prophetic voice before the final word arrives. And I think that's the way that we should look to Elihu as Elihu enters the match. Some of you guys get that as a reference to video game. Let's move on. Elihu's first speech. And the essence of his first speech in chapters 32 and 33 is that God speaks. You remember Job's great issue was one, I, I haven't done anything. I'm innocent. That's one. But number two, God will not answer me. He's done this to me, and then he abandoned me. And when I'm asking him why and what, he won't even respond to me. And Elihu's response directly to Job, to his friends as well, but really to Job in particular, is that God does speak. And so I think that would be a helpful thing to us. I'm not going to read our two, uh, our two chapters before we begin. I'm just going to pray and then try to unpack this as we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, we're reminded in the back of our minds of why he had to come. That sin and darkness still reign in this mortal life. And that, Lord, it is merely a matter of time and circumstance before each of us will experience suffering. And we know that Christ has come to reverse that. Maybe not fully in the sense that to, to make us uh, um, invincible to it or to take us, uh, rescue us away from its nearness or its proximity. But Lord, Christ has come to remind us that you still speak. Your word became flesh so that we might know that there is hope and salvation that goes beyond this present life. And that no matter what happens in this, our, our life can be secure, our eternity set, and our hope always and forever satisfied. And so, Lord, teach us to look to Christ in these days as we think of his advent. But as we look now to the scriptures, help us to appreciate the words of your prophet Elihu as he rebukes Job's friends and he rebukes Job and he rebukes us. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just to kind of give you the larger overview, um, Elihu has a, a message to Job's friends in the first part of chapter 32, or basically all of chapter 32. Then he has an appeal to Job, first as a sufferer in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 33. And then, I think more particularly in the part that I hope that we could spend the most time in, in a response to Job as the accuser, right? He's accusing God of kind of falling short of his end of this bargain, which is their relationship. But let's begin first with the message that Elihu has to Job's friends. It begins with Elihu, introduced in verses 1 through 5 as the angry messenger, as the angry messenger. You'll see why I'm saying that. Look at verse 1 through 5. It says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. That's just the author of Job kind of telling us what's going on. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, 
the Buzite of the family of Ram burned with anger. That's our first indication of anger. And then in the next sentence, he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Verse 3, he burned with anger, that's the third time, also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. They said Job is in sin, but they gave him no answer beyond your sin. That's, that's why this is happening to you. So he's burning with anger for that. Now Elihu had wanted to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. The name Elihu means he is my God. And so it connects us, even his, his family name or his, his, you know, his, his proper moniker, his personal name uh, suggests that he comes from a family of faith, right? Um, individuals that believed uh, in God. And then all the other stuff, the different family names that are named. Remember, this is pre-nation of Israel, so there isn't a tribal name attached to him. He is like Job, a man from the east, probably, a, a young man. He identifies himself as that. He recognizes the aged um, wisdom of the men that have spoken ahead of him. And the end of all of these cycles, three cycles of, uh, of dialogue, all the stuff that has, uh, spent, we have spent chapters on, he, the conclusion that he comes with is he is upset. And again, like your instinct might be to say, well, can a Christian be angry? Well, I would say this, can God be angry? Because if you haven't realized in the reading of Scripture, God is literally the most angry person in the universe. He is angry towards sin, but he's not out of control. He is not, he is not uh, capricious or wild about his anger. He is direct towards things that are wrong. And this is Elihu coming on the scene, and you'll see even in his speech, he doesn't come across as some wild man, like, oh man, I'm so ticked off, I'm trying not to throw things at you, right? Instead, he comes off as this angry messenger on behalf of God. Look at what he says. He says he's angry with Job. Why? In verse 2. He's angry with Job. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He finds it troubling that he is putting all of this on God like God is doing something he's not allowed to do. So on, in defense of God, he's saying, you're defending yourself well. But it's like you have nothing to say about God. If nothing else, you imply an accusation against him. And that rackles him. That bothers him. He is angry with his friends in verses 3 to 5 because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be wrong. They're convinced that Job is receiving this, this trial, this pain, this suffering, because he deserves it. And that's it. The oversimplicity of the, of the legalistic mind, of the religiousness of these individuals, the black and white, right, we said kind of closed system, is, well, let's see. Garbage in, garbage out. You did bad, you get bad. You did good, you get good. Job, you did bad. And Job's like, no, I didn't. That's why we should explore this. And they're like, we got to explore nothing, man. You did bad. Case closed. And you can imagine individuals going through difficulty, suffering, the loss of a loved one, broken relationships, right? Physical, uh, uh, you know, disabilities, going through all of that. And all of us just kind of shaking our heads and going, mm, someone did bad. I don't know if it was your parents or if it was you, but bad gets bad and good gets good. 
It doesn't take a Christian or anyone redeemed or anyone familiar with the gospel or the scriptures to understand that's not how God operates. And I think that's where Elihu, his anger, right, is riled. That's, that's where his, his hackles are raised because he's like, what are you guys doing, All right? A man in pain, a, a godly man in pain, he, there should be some answers or at least some direction for him, some help. Not just simply, you must be bad. That's why you get bad. He's an angry messenger, an emissary of the Lord. Well, secondly, um, we think a look at the message itself and what he will say about why he needs to speak in verses 6 to 10 is because of inspiration. There is a need, he says, for an inspired message for the aged ones among us, right? Look at 6 through 10. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, you are, you are aged. I, I think we should take that, right, and understand that as his recognition that in his culture that it's not appropriate for him to just step on their toes, so he, he goes on to say at the end of verse 6, Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. In fact, he has been waiting, he was going to say in a second, right? He has been waiting a long time. Verse 7, I said, let days speak. You get what he's saying? You have days, you, you have many days of experience. I might have hours. And so he's saying, I told myself, let, let the aged speak. And he says, and many years teach wisdom. It's a great statement in verse 7 of humility, of looking to the, the older ones in the room, right? Thinking that the gray hairs have things to say. And so he has been waiting. Verse 8. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. We'll come back to this in a second. In verse 9 and 10. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. So you love this because he approaches, I think, with an appropriate humility. He recognizes that, listen, you guys are speaking through three cycles, right? Like dozens of chapters of words, and I didn't say anything because I'm a young guy and you guys are older. I, I give you that respect. I recognize that as far as experience is concerned, you have years, you have days, I have hours, right? He says, but, in verse 9 and 10, his conclusion is not the old who are always wise, nor is the aged who always understand what is right. So he says, so I have something to say as well. And I think the turning point is verse 8. So look at verse 8 there with me. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the mighty, that makes him understand. Now, there's a couple things that that might mean, right? Because uh, uh, the, uh, the idea of the breath of God, uh, the word for breath and spirit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, can, the same word can be translated either one. And I think what he is saying is there's something about God and his spirit, his breath, that gives a man who has his own spirit understanding. He is implying, and he will repeat this, I think, more, uh, um, uh, I think more specifically. He is implying, though, that God's Spirit is able to grant an individual wisdom. And age in and of itself, right, though it could get, grant to us much experience, does not promise wisdom. That's an excellent word for us, for us older guys, 
for us older ladies, right? For the white gray hairs in the room, it is a good thing for us to hear from this young prophet that we need to learn God's truth and not merely rely on our experience, right? There's also a word for here for, for the younger that, that the younger needs to learn God's truth before you get too old and begin to rely on your own experience. You know, we, we say this often, but momentum, momentum by itself, time by itself, will not make you more godly. You know, you've, if you've been a Christian long enough, if you've known a lot of individuals long enough, you have probably seen that, you know, um, with your own eyes. That just because you're a Christian... Doesn't over, you know, over generations, over decades, you don't just wake up one day and get godly. I, whenever I talk with young Christians, right, students particularly, um, and as they are starting their Christian journey, I think, and I think of my, myself when I became a Christian in my freshman year in college, I, I always thought, dude, like, you know, give me like 20, 30 years, I'll just be a godly man. And it's like, well, what's the basis of that? Well, because you get older, Right? When you're little, you kind of grow bigger, right? If you're, if you're, you know, if you're younger, then you gather information, experience, you get smarter. And so aren't I just going to naturally get more godly? And the answer is no. Look at the grumpy people that you have to work with or that are your bosses. Has age just naturally refined them and made them godlier, more gracious, right? More Christ-like, more wise. And I think this is a refutation of that concept. It, will it make you more experienced? Yes. And so there is something valuable about your parents, even if, you know, even if they're not believers, because they might have some experience that's helpful. But are they wise unto the things of the Lord? No, momentum does not grant to you divine wisdom. If you want God's wisdom, you've got to fight for it. And as evidence, I, I read to you Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs makes it clear that wisdom, right, is to be fought for, not to be just kind of, you know, just waited upon. You don't necessarily get more wise just because you get older, and that's his point. And, you know, I'm saying it more sharply than even Elihu. Elihu said it kind of calmly, right? He's saying, you're older, I'm not, and so I waited. I waited through all the cycles, and then you guys stopped talking. You guys kind of gave up. He will reiterate that in a moment. But as a result of that, I thought I should step in because in the end, it is the breath of God that grants understanding, not necessarily many days of life. So this is a message that has come by inspiration for the sake of the aged, right? This is a message, his speech, right? The things that he has to say is a prophetic message that has come by way of necessity. It's a necessary message for those that, that have found themselves frustrated and unable to answer some of the difficulties of this moment. Look at verses 11 through 16. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. 
I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. He's going to say, I was waiting because you have to say something. You can't just let Job do and say whatever he says. You can't let his heart wander from the things of the Lord. You've got to help him. Verse 13, beware lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, speaking of Job, right? But not necessarily us, not necessarily men in their words, in their ministry. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. This is verse 14. Um, Elihu is saying that I have not interacted with Job directly, but I won't give him your answers. Verse 15 and 16. Talking about Job's friends, they are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more. His whole point is that there has been a failure amongst the the older men in this group, right? And that human philosophy and understanding have fallen short to explain to Job what is the best way to approach his suffering in this life, to approach God in the midst of his suffering in this life. They haven't given any answers. They've stopped trying. And so it necessitates him speaking into this space. That's, that's, I think, his point. And finally, the message that he brings is urgent. It's urgent. Verse 17 through 23. He says, I also will answer with my share. I will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskin uh, wine skins ready to burst. He's saying that, that, that it has been fermenting, right? The gases are building. There's this, this huge burp of wisdom that needs to come out. He needs to speak, right? So verse 20, I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. There's a couple of things that he says there, right? One is that it's necessary, it's urgent that I speak this on behalf of God. One, because it has been stewing in me as I've been patiently waiting and listening, and no good answer has been given. So I have to speak, and I have to speak not because I am so significant, because my maker would have me to speak. That's that last phrase, else my maker would soon take me away, right? He says, I will not, verse 21, show partiality or use flattery towards anyone. But he feels this compulsion to speak. On compulsion, um, Jeremiah said similar things in Jeremiah 29. I will not mention him or speak any more of his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire, he says, shut up in my bones that I am weary and withholding it, I cannot. And in terms of speaking truth, Right? Without partiality, without flattery, without trying to convince someone in oral argument merely by the fact that I am eloquent, this is what Paul would say about himself and the speaking of the gospel of truth in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1-5. through 5. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith 
might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, when I came to you, I wasn't very eloquent, right? The, all the talking heads on the TV are much better than I am. I wasn't convincing. I wasn't trying to be convincing. I just wanted you to know Christ and him crucified. I wanted you to know the gospel. And as a result of that, my point was that even if I was stuttering and weak and fearful and trembling, I wasn't giving you oral arguments that were so astounding. I was just speaking to you God's truth and power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So see, there's a lot of things that as Elihu uh, approaches Job's friends that sound like right, our, our, our methodology of speaking truth, even for New Covenant believers, because Christ spoke truth that way. He's not convincing because, man, because he was so good and his, you know, he has his good vibrato or something, right? He was convincing because he spoke truth in love. He spoke what was needed. He spoke out of inspiration. He spoke out of necessity. And he spoke a message that was urgent. And that was his purpose for speaking to a lost people. So Elihu is that, a messenger of God, an emissary of God, speaking to Job's friends and rebuking them for not accomplishing what they should have accomplished with the words and wisdom that God would have given them. So that's the message to Job's friends. And then the message to Job is all of chapter 33. But the first 13 verses is kind of to Job as an appeal to Job as a sufferer, right? In verses 1 through 7, the thing to catch is his compassionate appeal. This is how he addresses Job. But now, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Right? This is not that, that first verse is not that dissimilar to, to uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. They, they all kind of begin that way. And then they start to say something kind of nice. And then they'll go to Job, you've sinned. You need to confess your sin. But instead of coming right at Job, right, and attacking him for something, he says this, Behold, I open my mouth, verse 2, the tongue in my mouth speaks. And okay, listen, he's young, and he does, he is a little bit windy, right? Like he did, like, you know, like, okay, Elohim, I get it. You use your mouth and your tongue to speak. You didn't, you really didn't need to put that in, into verse form, but maybe that rounds out the, the passage. I don't know. Verse 3, my words declare the uprightness of my heart and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. So he's saying that I am speaking from a position of sincerity. I'm just going to speak what is true. And I, I want to speak to you honestly and with absolute sincerity. Verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. See, so again, I think he, he's leveraging this idea of inspiration that this is a spiritual issue, spiritual with a capital S, that it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, that has crafted him and that breathed life into him and to his wisdom, into his argument, into his message. So he's saying it's spiritual. He's sincere. He's spiritual. Verse 5, answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. He's sympathetic. 
I love this. He is saying, right, his approach to Job is, listen, I'm just coming at you from what, what is true. I just feel like, sincerely, I just got to speak this out. Two, I'm coming to you with a message that is from the Spirit of God. This is not just me, right? This is spiritually given. But third, I am sympathetic to you. I, I want you to recognize, verse six, 6 and 7, that I look towards God just like you look towards God. I'm a man of faith like you're a man of faith. I was pinched off from a piece of clay just like you were. A reference that would later, right, because Genesis hasn't been written yet, but probably in oral speech, the, the story of how Adam was created from the dust of the earth is probably informing this statement. He is saying, Job, I'm pinched off from dirt just like you are. We're the same human mortal stuff. So verse 7, he says, you don't have to fear any kind of terror coming from me. You'll be happy to know there is not any pressure that is placed upon you. He is not patronizing Job. He is saying that I, I come at you with compassion. I appeal to you because I have, it would be like a good friend saying, I have no idea what this is like for you to experience right now. But I know we're the same stuff. I know we're made of the same weaknesses. I know we are both broken and, and fragile as far as eternity is concerned. He, he begins with a, a, a passionate appeal to Job the sufferer. And then an appropriate rebuke, again, to Job the sufferer. Look at verses 8 through 13. Surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. He's giving an affirmation. I have listened to you. I've heard you. Can we say, just even in terms of counseling, what, what a blessed thing you could be if you give an, an attentive ear to someone who might be in pain, right? Someone who is struggling. I love this because there is an immediate wisdom in Elihu in that he's not the kid just kind of like, you know, watching from the side, like, oh, who's speaking? Is it, is it my turn yet? What number are we on, right? Like, like, when is my turn? He's not waiting to get his argument in. That's usually how we argue, you know? Have you been arguing with someone? And it's like they're talking, and you don't really care what they're saying because you're like, oh, okay, I think they said this. So, okay, I got my stuff. I'm ready to go. I'm ready. Are you done yet? I'm about to, I need to step in and say my business, right? That's how we approach it. And he's saying, I have listened. Surely you have spoken in my ears, right? I'm not surely. Remember that one joke? I have heard the sound of your words. And he says, you say, he's, now he's going he's gonna to capture Job's argument. And I think he does a good job in it. He says, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there's no inequity in me. So, right, we said this already, but Job has always argued, one, he is innocent. Job has never argued that he is without sin. Remember, the opening chapter of Job, Job is sacrificing for himself and his children. So he recognizes, right, the need for sacrifices as an act of worship and a recognition of his sin and need to repent and depend upon God for righteousness. So, so Job is a man of faith. He recognizes that he's a sinner, but that as far as he could tell, that he is pure, clean, without iniquity in regards to all of this that has taken place, right? And so Elihu is saying, I've listened carefully to you. So let me summarize what you're saying. You're saying you're pure, without transgression, clean, and no inequity. And I think that he captures it well. That's his first major point. Behold, he finds occasions against me 
He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. So the second thing that Job seems to be arguing, according to Elihu, and I think he's correct again, is he's claiming that God is against him, right? I, Job, am pure, without transition, clean, no iniquity. But behold, he, God, finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in stocks, right? Like, is, is like public shame, right? And watches all my paths. The interesting thing about that statement about stocks and paths, it's almost a direct quote from Job 13, 27. This is exactly what Job had said. And so we have noticed that Job will press the boundaries. Job never says something as unrighteous as, as God is unjust, you know? God, God is wicked, or God doesn't know what he's doing. He, he just keeps saying, right? He gets closer and closer to that implication, but he is saying, God is against me, and I have no explanation why, so I keep asking him, and he won't tell me, all right? God is doing all this stuff against me, and he won't. It's almost like he's like embarrassing me publicly. He's putting me out there. He's watching my steps so that he could keep getting me, and I'm not sure why. So I think it's an accurate restatement of Job's, Job's position. It demonstrates that he has been listening, he has been thoughtful, and he's going to respond basically to what Job has said. Verse 12, Behold, in this you are not right. And this is his rebuke. Job, you are not right in this. And I will answer you. And his answer is the next phrase. For God is greater than man. His answer is, Job, you don't press God into the mode and image of man. He's pressed us into his image. And yeah, you, you want an answer, you want justice, etc. but I just want to remind you, God is God and we are humans, right? He says in verse, verse 13, so why do you contend against God, saying he will answer none of man's words? His point is God is greater than us, and if he doesn't answer immediately, that's his prerogative. He's under no obligation to give us an immediate answer. He's not our genie, right? We are his servants, his creation. God is greater. That, that's the significant thing that he begins with in terms of his rebuke of Job. Elihu's point is that, Job, you claim innocence, right? Which I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I don't think that I see anything that you have done, nor do I know personally of anything that you have done that deserves this. But two... You have, from your suffering, your innocent suffering, you are now claiming that God has worked against you in such a way that implies that he is doing something that is inappropriate for God. And his point is, just remember, we are not God. Keep the Holy One holy. That's his rebuke. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, you're familiar with these words, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God does as he pleases because he is God. And if he ceases to do as he pleases freely and without necessity or without you know, any requirement besides him being him, then he is enslaved to something else and no longer God. The part of his absolute freedom... Is his, or part of his deity is his absolute freedom. The Lord gets to do as he does. And he would just remind Job that God is holy and he is great and he can do as he chooses to do. 
Why did God send Jesus Christ to die for sinners like you and me? I don't know. He shouldn't have. Why didn't he rescue, you know, my, my uncle or my grandfather? Or we could name a bunch of people. And again, I, I wish I had a clear answer. Oh, it's because God was busy. I, I don't know. But I am not God. And that, that's all Elihu is trying to say. You don't speak into what God is required to do as if he is required to answer you. And this is still an appeal and an appropriate rebuke. It's not simply, Job, you're a sinner. You deserve this. It's the opposite. He's saying, I, I'm with you. I don't think you deserve this from anything that you have done. But where you are inappropriate is that you're actually blaming God in such a way that suggests that he has to answer for this. He is holy. We are human. And it is an appropriate, I think, a rebuke on Job and how Job is, he's, again, I don't want to say that Job is like just denying God. He's not. But man, he is getting close to saying things. And he has said things about God and how God is against him, etc. That, 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 that is wrong. Right? That could speak to a sin of the heart that is beginning to doubt God's goodness and his right to his sovereignty. And that's where he's pressing in on him, and I think in a very well-stated way. That is exactly Job's problem, right? Not that he's a sufferer, but because his suffering is starting to produce in him a sinful attitude. So he appeals to Job the sufferer, right? That was the second thing. And the second part of, uh, um, of chapter 33 he will respond to Job, the accuser, right? Verses 14 through 18, God speaks, right? In each of these, it's about how God speaks. And I think his response to Job, who's saying, that, man, God, God needs to answer me. Why doesn't he tell me he owes me this, etc.? I think, I think Elihu's um, poetic way of answering is by saying God speaks in our fears, right? Look at verse 14 through 18. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Verse 14 is kind of the general statement of how God speaks in so many different ways. It reminds me immediately, especially in this season, of Hebrews 1 and 2. There it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's saying God gave special revelation in so many different ways. But in verse 2 of Hebrews 1, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Literally, God has spoken revelation, right? Through a donkey, right? Through prophets, through this thing from the sky, right? Through, you know, voice like thunder and roaring water. He has spoken to us so many different ways in the past. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through son. The son whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom also he created this world. And so Elihu is saying the same. God speaks in a lot of different ways in one or another, and it's up to us to perceive what the Lord is speaking to us. He can speak to us, he says in verse 15 and following, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. Now this is an interesting one. Because on the face of it, I think he is saying that God could speak to us even when we are not conscious in our dreams and our visions, etc. 
right? And that's true. And there have been times in the Old Testament in particular and in the New Testament as well when God has spoken to people while they're sleeping in their dreams. And it's clear that it is a message from God. That's why they need an answer to what is happening. So God has spoken in Revelation while they're unconscious is his point. But that is not only his point. I, I think some commentators make a good point that it is, it is when we're trying to sleep, right? When we're slumbering, that if we have a guilty conscience or something uh, uh, um, anxious is upon our souls and hearts, this is when terror comes upon us and, it's, and, and sleep escapes us. Rest escapes us, right? If you have been anxious about a test or a deadline, if you have been worried about something in your life, or if you feel guilty because you did something and you're trying to keep it from people, but it's getting out, right? Like usually in the moment where we're supposed to find our rest, that's when our conscience stirs. And I think that's kind of what he's talking about. That if there's a moment that we find our anxieties to be overwhelming to us, does not God speak to us, rebuke us in that moment? He says, why? Verse 16 says, Then God opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. And then verse 17, That he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He might cause repentance. And that he might have a man leave aside his pride. Verse 18, He keeps back his soul from the pit. God rescues people from the pit meaning, you know, the grave from death and keeps his life from perishing by the sword. And he does that sometimes through speaking into their anxieties and their fears. The word terror has been used by Bildad in Job 18, saying, and in Job 30, 15, Job says of himself, terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity is passed away like a cloud. He says, yeah, I feel the anxieties, the pains, and the fears of this moment. Elihu is saying, I know, but God is speaking into your heart in that space. I think this is similar to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 saying that there's a thorn in the flesh. I've been praying that God will remove it, and he says, no. My grace is sufficient for you. And you would think, well, God, I'm a servant of you. I wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, or I am at present, right? Like, like, don't I deserve a little bit of relief from whatever this thorn in the flesh is? And Paul's response to that is God says no. That sometimes he speaks to us in the midst of our anxieties and difficulties. He gets more specific. God speak to us, speaks to us not only in our fears, but he speaks to us in our sufferings. In our sufferings. Now we get into this theological place where quite amazing this young man and the things he has to say. He says, Man, verse 19, is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continued strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his, and his appetite, the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not, were, that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. He is describing Job, right, to a T in terms of his earthly suffering. And as he does that, I think this is his opening kind of statement in this, in this particular, you know, sub-point 3B. 
where he's talking about how God speaks in the midst of our pain, and he's saying, I recognize your pain. I realize you have lost hunger, that your flesh is wasted away, and that I could see your bones sticking out, right? Your, your soul is, draw near, is drawing near to the pit. You've said as much yourself. You anticipate that you are going to die, and you think that the angels are going to collect you soon. I hear, right, the echo of your pain. His point, though, is that our God is able to speak, right, in the midst of pain. I read this quote, I think, very early on when we began in Job. But it's from C.S. Lewis's um, The Problem of Pain. Um, C.S. Lewis went through a lot of interesting stuff. He has, I think he had osteoporosis. I think, is that, I think that's the right term, right? Where like, like he had a bone issue that, that caused his spine to be in constant pain. He went through World War I and got injured. Right, And so he, uh, he suffered more pain physically as a result of that. His mom died when he was a young man, so emotionally life was hard. His dad was emotionally disconnected to him the way that he describes it. And so he's just kind of on his own mostly. Right, he, he met the love of his life, got married to her, and four year, I think four years later she died of cancer. And so as a result of that, he's speaking about pain and the problem of pain. And then this is what he says. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as, as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. So you hear what he's saying? He's saying when everything's going well, right, your self-sufficiency and your self-will, it dominates you, and you don't even know it. Why? Because everything's going well. He says pain is unmasked unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he's being hurt. We, cannot re- we can rest contentedly in our sins, right? Meaning like if everything's going well, but pain insists upon being attended to. And that's when he says this famous quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see his point? His point is that, yes, we learn sufficiency in suffering. And you say, no, we can learn sufficiency without suffering. Can you? So if your job is paying you well, your boss is really nice, you got the, the last two weeks of the year off, right? You're, you, you paid off student loans and everything's going hunky-dory. You're about to get married and have many kids and live a happy and prosperous life. You're going to get nice and chubby, eating all this good food. If that is your life, then tell me, where can you identify the clear sufficiency of Christ? That feels like the sufficiency of the material world or the sufficiency of your efforts or your intelligence or your capacities or maybe even the sufficiency of your dumb luck. And we feel sufficiency when we're lacking all the above. When we are lying in the hospital bed, wondering if this is the end. When we're holding the hands of the loved one that is lying in the hospital bed, wondering if this is the end. It is when we hurt or lack that we sense the true sufficiency of Christ in our hearts. Is God sufficient? Is Christ enough? How will you know? Not in the abundance of your blessing, but in the midst of your pain and loss. That's when you know if Christ is enough. And that's his point. You're going through physical 
turmoil in a way that you cannot, that I cannot fathom, Job. But even as a sufferer, I want you to know God has not, he's not turned silent on you. In fact, it's a moment of speaking, maybe not in direct revelation like you demand, but he is never, nevertheless, he is speaking. Verses 23 to 25, he speaks of a divine messenger. He says in verse 23, If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, meaning he, God, is merciful to him, and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. There is some deep thoughts in here that, that is impossible for us to fully appreciate. Except when we look back, we are constantly reminded of the image of Christ himself, right? The, this is Elihu the prophet saying, in the midst of your pain, I want you to realize something, that there can be a mediator, a messenger, which angel means, from the Lord to declare what is right. That God could declare upon you mercy to deliver you from the pit because he has found a ransom. This is an interesting word, koper. It is associated the word for atone or atonement as in the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, right? Similar, uh, similar root. And the idea is that a ransom is paid to atone for something so that you might be born again. Lest his flesh become flesh with youth. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Let energy and life return to these broken bones. This is wonderful. He is saying that there is a mediator, that there is a potential ransom, a rescue, right, from pit and disaster, and a renewal. All of this, he says, is possible. And that's part of what God speaks to you in the midst of pain. This is not the end. It may be physically the end, but it's not the end. God is still God. Oh, verse 26 to 28. I'm going to rush through these last few ones. Sorry. He also speaks of repentance. He says, And when all that takes place, a messenger comes with a message of life and rescue and redemption and ransom. Verse 26 then that man prays to God, and God accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. So this man will sing before men and say, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. All I can say about this is that he is filled with the joy of singing because of his repentance. Because God has accepted him. Because God has renewed him. Because God has given him better than simply a renewal of physical ability or a removal of pain. So much better awaits the man of faith if he will see pain as God speaking to him to turn to him and to find him sufficient. And so his conclusion in verses 29 and 30, right? His conclusion is that God speaks if we'll listen. He simply says this, um, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit. If God is patient, he'll repeat what needs to be done. 
that he may be lighted with the light of life. So he says, verse 31, pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. So, so if you just read those three verses, you might think, man, what a pompous young punk, right? Got so much to say. But if you read it in the context of everything that he said, you're like, dude, what a kind prophet to come and speak to Job the hope that is always in his God. And not to be over-infatuated with the need for these answers, but to recognize that God is still God. Elihu, right? This young man that we'll deal with, his name means he is my God. And it's a good name. And it's a good message from a young dude who has some wisdom, not because he is aged and experienced, but because he believes who God is. And God has given him a message for a suffering Job and for a suffering Christian, right? Thousands of years later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And even as we think, Lord, in this time of year, we recognize that people around us are probably living in some amount of pain. And we ask that you would help us to be mediators of that, to be thoughtful of that, to at least lift them up in prayer about those things. To know that every human being, every sinner can have hope in a God that loves us. Not because of what we are or what we can accomplish for him, but because of Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to lean in on your grace. Not to dictate terms, not to demand a word, not to demand that you do some things for us so that we might be more faithful, but instead to look to you, our holy God, to see your righteousness to repent of our wickedness, and to trust in your Son for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.